we come this morning to our second major genealogy in Genesis. I know this is one of those things in your devotional Bible reading that you just kind of get to and go, what is this for? What am I supposed to do with this? Um, But we trust that the Lord has purposes when he puts stuff in his scriptures. And so I think there's a point to this. Um, We're going to get into it. Uh, If you have any questions along the way, feel free to text them to our uh, text number, and uh, we'll take a look at those at the end this morning. So what I have been saying as we have um, progressed through Genesis is as modern American Christians, we often answer the question, what is wrong with the world, by referring back to Genesis 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, their temptation by the serpent to not trust God, but to trust in their own wisdom to gain knowledge. And this is the fall of humanity. And that's kind of the the key point where everything goes sideways. But to a first century Jewish person, they would also answer what we saw in Genesis 6, the sin of the watchers, the sons of God that that left their heavenly uh, uh, abode and married human women and uh, all kinds of chaos ensued from this episode. But then they would also say there's one more thing that contributes to the brokenness in the world, and that's what we see in Genesis 10 and 11. 10 and 11, they go together, and they kind of feel like they're out of order, but they, it makes sense the way the author is uh, writing this. The table of nations, this expansion of all these peoples, is the result of what happens at the Tower of Babel. And we're going to take a look at the story of the Tower of Babel next time we gather, not next week because we're raking next week, but in two weeks, we'll take a look at it. But the table of nations comes first, literarily. So this genealogy begins with, the, these are the family records. This is the next toledot in Genesis. Remember the word toledot is this idea of a a break in the story. There's different sections in the story of Genesis, and they all begin with this word toledot. This is the history. These are the records. And we've seen different things throughout our study so far, and there will be more toledots further along. And just like the last genealogy in chapter 5, Moses is making a theological point by giving us this section, not just listing a family tree. When we think about genealogies, our major objective is who was my great, 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 great granddad? And, you know, what side was he on in the Civil War? Whatever the questions that we have are, Moses isn't doing that. He's trying to teach us something specifically theologically. And one of the reasons we know this is because there are 70 nations in this genealogy. Uh, 70 is an important number in the Bible. It's a number that speaks of completeness. And so when we recognize that there are 70 nations here, we also see that there are several of the generations of the sons of Noah have seven members in them. Moses is uh, telegraphing to us that there's a completeness about this list. This list is not in totality, Not every nation that has ever existed is in this list, but it is representative of all of the nations. 
Bill Arnold says, Genesis gives explanation to other populations in a kind of ethnic map of the world and explains further the way Israel related to those populations. It's important to note that not everyone on this list is the name of an individual person. John Walton says a number of them clearly name people groups, such as the Jebusites, Amorites, and Girgashites. Others are well known as city names like Sidon or geographical destinations like Mizraim, Tarshish, or Sheba. So I made a slide here, um, found this online. This is kind of a general overview of the three sons of Noah and where they spread out. Japheth kind of goes north, Shem is kind of in the Arabian Peninsula, and Ham kind of goes to the southwest in most of the nations that are uh, listed for their descendants. So these are all nations that the nation of Israel would have been familiar with, but because there's only 70 listed, there are some nations that we run across in Scripture that are not on this list. What we're meant to understand is this nation table is representative of all the nations of the earth. There are two characters in this genealogy that I want to hit on today. The first one is this guy, Nimrod. In verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and the great city Kala. So Nimrod is called a powerful hunter. That word is a, a gibor in Hebrew. The giborim was the title that were given to the Nephilim back in Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, it says the Nephilim were on the earth those, both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind and bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So Nimrod is given the same title as this group of quasi-spiritual, quasi-human warrior kings. And then look what it says about Nimrod. Nimrod founds two great civilizations, Babylon and Assyria. And these are the two nations that rise up eventually, and they both have a hand in conquering Israel and leading them into captivity. Later on in the story, Israel has been... um, has had a civil war, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Assyria comes in and attacks the northern kingdom and takes them captive back to Assyria. Babylon, 100 years later, comes in and attacks the southern kingdom and takes them into captivity. So Nimrod is this literary connection between the pre-flood sin in chapter 6 and the violence and sin after the flood. We talked about earlier that God recognized that after the flood, the problem of human sin didn't go away. It was still in our human hearts, and he committed to work with us nonetheless. But the clue we get in chapter 10 is that all of the same things, all of the broken things that came out of the sin in chapter 6 made it through to chapter 10 after the flood. The second character in this genealogy and the one that, whose, whose uh, comments we're going to spend the most time on this morning is this guy named Peleg. In chapter 10, verse 25, we read, Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg, for during his days the earth was divided. 
His brother was named Juktan. Peleg means division. He is Shem's great-great-grandson. And it says he was alive when the earth was divided. What does it mean that the earth was divided? I think the easiest answer for that is just to look to the very next chapter when we see the, the incident with the Tower of Babel where God is going to divide the nations into different language groups. And so the genealogy tells us that Peleg was alive when this took place. Next week, we're going to take a look exactly at the events of, next, not two weeks, sorry. We're going to take a look at the events of the Tower of Babylon. But for the rest of this morning, I want to take a brief kind of tour of the scriptures and shed some more light on this idea of the division of the nations. So a lot of what I'm going to present today comes from the work of um, a scholar named Michael Heiser. We have his book, Supernatural, in the library. It's great if you are interested in a more, uh, much thicker version of that book. He has a book called The Unseen Realm that's uh, full of awesome footnotes if you're into that sort of thing. But I want to focus your attention on Deuteronomy chapter 32, and I'll have it up on the screen. Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. Moses is speaking. He says, he's speaking to the people of Israel who've been saved from Egypt. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of past generations. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will teach you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance and divided the human race, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the people of Israel. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his own inheritance. See, that's the, that's the Christian Standard Bible. That's the version that I teach from that we have in our pews, and it's a great translation. But it does something here that's a little weird. And in order to explain that, I, I've got a little chart. Here we go. So there are different versions of the Hebrew Bible. And this is super geeky, but I think it's helpful to understand. Most of our Old Testament comes from what's called the Masoretic Text. And this is a tradition of Hebrew scribes called the Masoretes that hand copied the Old Testament generation after generation after generation for hundreds and hundreds of years. The oldest copy of the Masoretic text we have comes from about 1000 AD. So long after these books were written. We have another Old Testament called the Septuagint. Septuagint uh, or the LXX, if you ever see that abbreviation in your Bibles, that's a Greek version of the Old Testament, and it was written about 200 BC. So way closer to the events of uh, the Old Testament, but still written in a different language. Most of the New Testament quotes of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. So if you're ever reading Jesus or Paul and they quote, he, they quote the Old Testament, and then you go back to the verse and it's a little different, it's because our Bibles generally stick to the Masoretic text, but Paul and Jesus' Bible would have been the Septuagint. The third category that I want to show you guys is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written about 300 to 200 BC, maybe a little bit more a little bit earlier than the Septuagint, and they were found in a series of caves in the 1940s, um, uh, uh, protected from the elements in pots, and they're written in Hebrew, and they're way earlier than anything else we have. And so when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they did at least two really good things for Bible scholarship. The first one is that the Dead Sea Scrolls are really, really similar to the Masoretic text. 
So when we take a look at the Masoretic text that was written 1,300 years later, we see very few changes. And that lets us know that these Hebrew scribes faithfully copied the Old Testament year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. If you are uh, maybe skeptical of the authority of scripture or have talked with people who are and they do the whole like telephone game thing, like it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and after so many generations, who knows what it originally meant? Well, we can prove that at least from 300 BC to 1000 AD, the Jewish people preserved their scriptures faithfully and we can trust that what we have is what they had back then. The second thing that the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us is they become kind of a tiebreaker when there is a translation question. There's there's still all kinds of translation questions in the Bible, and they're all really small. But the Dead Sea Scrolls in Hebrew are closer in time to what the Septuagint scholars in Greek had access to. Those two uh, time periods are much closer together than the Masoretic text. And so when we look at all of the manuscripts, and by we, I mean scholars that are way smarter than me, look at all these manuscripts and try to figure out what the original was, the Dead Sea Scrolls helps us have access to an older tradition closer to the Septuagint. So, all that to say, I think the the, the CSB uses the Masoretic text in the verse in Deuteronomy that I read, but I want to read you the English Standard Version, which uses the Dead Sea Scrolls text. It says, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you your elders, they will teach you. When the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, he, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So the difference is in the Masoretic text, it says the sons of Israel, but in the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says the sons of God. Heiser in his his work makes a pretty convincing case that the best reading is the sons of God reading for a number of reasons, one of which Israel didn't exist during the Tower of Babel events and several others. So what, what does this mean? After Genesis 11, God disinherits the nations. He divides them up, gives them different languages, and he chooses a single family for himself to work through in order to bring his plan of redemption, the snake crusher, to pass. Prior to this, he's been engaging with the whole world in various ways, and we've seen it throughout Genesis. And at this point, he says, I've had enough of all of you. I'm 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 leaving you alone to your own devices, and I'm going to focus on one specific family. In the very next chapter, chapter 12, we get the call of Abraham, and where God is going to work with Abraham and his family to create a nation for himself. We read this in Deuteronomy 4 as well. It says, Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So God gives the other nations over to 
what Deuteronomy 32 calls the sons of God. These are other spiritual beings. We've talked about this before. God has a uh, council of angels and archangels and all kinds of things that work for him. And he delegates to individual spiritual beings the authority over all the other nations. God specifically sets aside Israel as his chosen people and gives the other nations over to be ruled by these other nations quote, gods. So how does it go? Well, if we jump to Psalm 82, God gives these other divine beings a report card. He says, God, it says, God stands in the divine assembly. He pronounces judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. Then the psalmist cries, rise up, God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. These sons of God, these spiritual beings have been given charge over the nations. They've been told to rule them justly and they do not do a good job of it. Heiser says, the picture we get in Psalm 82 runs from neglect that causes chaos to stirring the pot of chaos, thereby making the lives of people miserable. And the psalmist cries out, fix this, God. Step in, because all of these nations ultimately belong to you. But this was all part of God's plan. In Genesis 12, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God focuses his energy on this one man and his family, and he decides to work specifically through him and his children in order to bring back his salvation. How does this work? Exodus 19, the Lord says, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples throughout the whole earth. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. The role of the priest is as a go-between between God and the people. Israel as a nation is meant to be a priesthood for all the other nations to draw them back to Yahweh. And when you begin to see this in scripture, it pops up everywhere. So here's an example. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is praying and he's fasting and he's seeking wisdom for, from God and he's doing it for three weeks. And then suddenly there's this supernatural being that shows up and he says, don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me, for from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of your chief princes, came to help me after I had been left there with the kings of Persia. 
This angel says something crazy. He says, as soon as you started praying, God sent me to answer your prayer, but it took me three weeks to get here because I was involved in this weird fight with the prince of Persia. The prince of Persia is not a human being. It's a supernatural being. A little later in that same chapter, the angel says, do you know why I've come to you? I must return at once to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. The Greek empire conquered the Persian empire and they had spiritual representation. This is how the apostle Paul understands the world. Throughout his letters, he references the work of Jesus and the church as being warfare against these spiritual powers. 1 Corinthians 2 says, we do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The words that Paul uses for rulers and authorities of this age are spiritual power words. And he says, if the spiritual powers that are in charge of the nations knew that Jesus had come to die, they never would have let it happen. In Colossians 2, he says, Jesus erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection was direct assault against spiritual power. Ephesians 3, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles. Every time you see the word Gentile in the New Testament, you could swap in the word nations. The word is ethne, ethnic groups. To proclaim to the nations the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Paul's mission to non-Jewish people was specifically designed to confront spiritual power. And he says all throughout the book of Ephesians, especially setting aside our divisions, our ethnic divisions, our tribal divisions, our social, our political divisions, and uniting under the lordship of Christ is one of the primary ways that we push back against the rulers and authorities. And all this starts in Genesis chapter 10. So what do we do with that? How do, you, how do you, you know, apply that to your life today? <laughs> Clint Arnold says, the principalities and powers are alive and well and exert their influence in a wide variety of ways. Instead of denying their work, we need to develop our ability to discern the nature of their work so that we can stand against it. So here are some thoughts that I have. We are Americans. I like being an American. I've, 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 I've always enjoyed being a citizen of this country. I think I am privileged to be a citizen of this country. But the reality is, America is being overseen by a dark, evil, spiritual power. And some of you may say amen to that, but that same spiritual power was in charge in the last guy's administration too. And the guy before that. And the guy before that. 
and the guy before that. And, and, and when Washington and Jefferson and, and, and Franklin and Hamilton were putting this whole American experiment together, there was a wicked spiritual being ultimately running the show. America is not a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. Christians are a nation unto themselves. There are many Christians in America. And we have incorporated many Christian principles into our society. And praise God for that. We've ignored a few too. But the reality is, somewhere, at some level, the enemy is working to do dark, wicked things in our country. And so I get asked a lot as we, as we look out at the division in our nation and all of the crazy stuff that's going on, is, is this spiritual warfare? Is this what's happening in the world? And, and I think, yeah, it is. So, so what might it look like to be aware of what the spiritual powers and authorities are doing in our nation? The powers in scripture are connected to human authorities. Remember Nimrod, the, the mighty hunter who's somehow connected to the, the Nephilim he founds Babylon. He founds Assyria. These are major world powers that have spiritual powers above them. If you want to have influence over a nation, if you wanted to have influence over a nation, who would you spend your time with? The powers and principalities are not coming to my house to harass me. They're not coming to your house to harass you. Now, whoever you're thinking, whether it's the president or Congress or Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg or who, Elon Musk, those are all powerful people. And what I'm not saying is that those people are like demon-possessed. I don't think that that's true. We all, we all understand how to influence people, I think. We recognize that we're also being influenced by others. When my young child will not eat broccoli, what do I do? I go, mmm, it's so good. I wish you would have some. And then finally they go like, well, maybe, I don't, dad seems to like it. I'm not really sure, but I'll try it. Like that's influence, right? And, and you can do it for good or you could do it for ill. When I see a Big Mac on a commercial, it looks so, so good. And then I buy one and it's only like this thick and the pickles in a different bag. And like, what is going on? That's what influence is. And it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take your body to be possessed by the devil to be influenced. And so the spiritual powers, they are at work influencing authority, government, culture, whatever they can to bring about their agenda. So what's their agenda? I've, this is a little bit speculative, but I've got three ideas. If we go back to Psalm 82, Yahweh says, you are gods. You are all sons of the most high. However, you will die like humans and fall like any other ruler. That sounds to me like a challenge, doesn't it? Think of all the ways that our culture is pursuing the Garden of Eden without God. You can have the perfect body. 
You can have the perfect relationship. You can have the perfect diet. You can find a job that you can work without it being hard. Like those are all Eden impulses. They, They live deep inside of us because we are made for that. But we find ourselves in a world outside of the Garden of Eden, and yet all throughout our culture, we're told over and over and over again, if you follow this plan, if you abide by these rules, if you join this group, we can bring back Eden. I can imagine the powers being rebuked by Yahweh and saying, well, you know what? I can give humanity everything that Yahweh has promised. I'll show him. Second thing, I think, is the oppression of the poor. Psalm 82, 2 through 4 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy. Save them from the power of the wicked. We live in one of, if not the greatest country on earth, and yet there are countless people that are still treated unjustly every day in this nation. Some of you in this church are walking with friends who are just not being treated fairly by the justice system, whose employers and, and are, are, are treating them in ways that are unjust. We can look broader. We can look at inner city schools. We can look at the homeless population. We could look at uh, refugees, the victims of the pornography industry. You could go on and on and on about people who are not living the American dream. And I wonder if maybe the principalities and the powers have something to do with that. Because that's what God accuses them of doing. Siding with the wicked, showing partiality and not doing justice. The third thing I think the powers are busy doing is just making chaos. Psalm 82.5 says, They do not know or understand. They wander in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. The foundations of the earth are shaken. That's a creation idea. We see it all through the Psalms. The, the, The creation that God has made is good and stable, but the idea that it's falling apart, that's decreation language. That's chaos language. And I want to I bring up two instances where I think this is in play. And uh, we'll see how it goes. The first one is critical race theory. I have a conversation with someone about critical race theory almost every week. And without fail someone says, yeah, but nobody knows what that is anyway. Has that been your experience? It's almost like this knee-jerk kind of joke reaction about it. But you know what? We're still going to fight about it, aren't we? And that's, that's the point. The point of the issue isn't to like get down into the data and have a rational discussion about some kind of academic framework and whether or not it's beneficial in the pursuit of justice in our legal system, we've been given a buzzword to be angry and afraid of. It's just chaos, right? It's it's not productive. It's just meant to destroy us. That topic isn't 
uh, bad enough. Let's talk about vaccine mandates. We live in this world where the, this, this pandemic is raging across the world. And there's so much uh, misinformation and fear and caution. And there are many people who aren't excited about getting this kind of novel vaccine. We're suffering through supply chain issues and labor shortages around the country. And then our leaders, they think, let's just force everyone to get vaccinated. The president's mandate came out two months ago. We're going we're gonna to mandate this. And two months later, we still don't even know what the mandate is. What's, what's the point of that? It's chaos. It's, it's just meant to destroy. And I, I mean, full disclosure, I, I think the vaccine's pretty amazing. My family's vaccinated, and I feel like it'll probably be one of the things that the Trump administration is praised for by historians. But if you don't want to get vaccinated, like, you shouldn't have to. And everyone in America kind of knows that deep down, and yet we're still where we're at because it's just meant to be chaos. 2 Timothy 3 says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. Does that sound like the world that we live in? It does, doesn't it? And the thing is, all of this stuff lives in our wicked hearts. And all the powers and authorities have to do is fan the flame. So what do we do about it? Take a look at Jesus' interaction with some demons in Matthew 8. So demons in the grand scheme of spiritual powers are kind of like junior varsity. Like the, the spiritual power that would possess someone, take over their life. That's not what the principalities and powers are doing. They're running entire countries. But I think the comments of these demons are helpful. In Matthew 8, 28, we read, When he had come to the other side, Jesus has been in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So the question is, what, what's the time? Romans eleven twenty five. 25, Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, the nations, has come in. See, it seems that God has a clock and it ticks down every time a human being is snatched from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. And judgment is going to fully come on the spiritual world that has rejected Yahweh. It's going to fully come on the gods of the nations when everyone has been given an opportunity to be freed from bondage and adopted into God's family. And that's God's work. It's the work that he is doing in God's timing. But we, the church, are agents being used to get that done. We read in Matthew 28, super famous, 
Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We often start with the go, therefore, and make disciples part, but the first part is super important. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is saying the sons of God over the nations, they've been dispossessed. I am in charge now. And I am commissioning you to go make disciples, to expand the kingdom of God. How long? Until the end of the age. Until it's time for me to return and set up my kingdom. Heiser writes, the jurisdictional authority of these sons of God has been nullified by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. That reality is what frames the Great Commission. The call to reclaim the nations, go into all the world and make disciples. The kingdom of darkness will lose what is essentially a spiritual war of attrition, for the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the church. This is why believers are never commanded to rebuke spirits and demand their flight in the name of Jesus. It is unnecessary. Their authority has been withdrawn by the Most High. Believers are in turn commanded to reclaim their territory by recruiting the citizens in those territories for the kingdom of God. We don't need to attack the powers. We don't need to have some sort of territorial spiritual war plan. We need to be united as the church in inviting people to be a part of Jesus' kingdom and demonstrate the character of God through our good works. This is the way that God is reconstituting the nations that he scattered in Genesis 10. Like I said, next time we gather to study the Bible, we're going to take a look at the actual circumstances of the Tower of Babel, what went down, and how that points to a very specific kind of unity in the church. Let's take a look at some questions. Why does the CSB translation in verse 13 state the name of Mizraim while the NIV states the name of Egypt? Why would the names vary so much in different translations? Also, does this name relate to the modern-day nation of Egypt? Mizraim is the, um, the old name for Egypt. Um, if, you, um, yeah, if you do any, any work in, in ancient Egyptian stuff, Mizraim is kind of the the name of their kingdom. I don't know what it has to do with Egypt. I mean, they, it's very different in English, but that's, that's what they called Egypt at that time. When our Bibles say Egypt, they're translating the word Mizraim. And it does have everything to do with the modern nation of Egypt because all of that civilization comes from that area. Uh, let's see. Another question. Why should we trust the Masoretic text when the Septuagint was older and read by Jesus and used by the first church? And Martin Luther chose several original Septuagint books, the Apocrypha to set aside as not inspired scripture. I think, I think most of the time, and this is something that like uh, textual scholars do a lot, 
most of the time they are the same. I mean, the Septuagint is written in Greek and the Masoretic text is in Hebrew, so there's a little bit of difference because it's a different language. But when there are differences, that's the, that's the battle, right? Like, which one do we go with? And, and that's above my pay grade. Um, but Bible translation committees have to take each text one at a time and say, what are the odds that the Septuagint is wrong here versus the Masoretic text? And so it's not really a, it's, it's not really a fair um, distinction to just kind of wholeheartedly take one over the other. Uh, because both of them are documents that have um, been um, transcribed differently throughout church history or throughout Jewish history, so it's a, it's not really a question of of trust as it is of figuring out what is most likely original. And sometimes that's going to be the Masoretic text tradition, and they'll and scholars will find some reason why the Septuagint probably is off here, uh, and then other times they'll they'll say specifically because the Septuagint is older, that it's probably closer to the original. As for the, the Apocrypha, that's a, uh, that's a much, much bigger discussion. Um, the Apocrypha is not in our Bibles, uh, but it is in, in Catholic Bibles. And uh, it, there's a lot of um, church history and political reasons for that, which... Um, Maybe we can talk about it later. <laughs> this next question says, so are you saying that dark spiritual forces try to influence people with power more so than anyone like a normal Christian person? Yeah, I think so. I think if you, if you are a power that is seeking to cause chaos at a national level, you're not interested in me. You're not interested in you guys. You're interested that, in people that you can influence that can do damage uh, to a multitude. How do we live in the world and not of it when so many necessary things we do support things that God hates? We have to eat, so we buy food, but then the grocery store may do, uh, what does it say? The grocery store may donate to abortion clinics. At what point do we become responsible for the choices of the businesses we have to go to our life, to live our daily lives? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. That's a question that doesn't have easy answers. It has to do with, um, there's a whole branch of Christian ethics that talks about complicity with evil. We talked about it a little bit when we were talking about um, the, the creation of culture back in Genesis 4 and how the descendants of Cain were the ones that brought agriculture and music and metalworking to the world and, and how it's kind of tainted with this brokenness Everything is tainted with this brokenness. Um, we've talked about um, the, the cell lines that they use to test vaccines and other medications coming from uh, aborted children. We've talked about um, the precious metals in our phones that are largely uh, mined by children who get maimed and killed in Africa to secure cobalt and whatever else goes in an iPhone. There are over and over and over again, we can come to this realization that we are not immune from the effects of evil. And so a lot of times there's a really clear cut answer. Um, there's a real direct line between an evil act and our participation in it, but many, many times there's not. 
And it just takes a lot of thoughtfulness. And, and the reality is some of us are going to come to different conclusions on these things. Um, talking with people about um, child labor and the manufacture of our clothing. And some of you are super passionate about that issue. And, and I'm glad for that. And you strive to get clothing for yourselves that doesn't have any kind of participation in that evil system. And others of us just can't afford that. And a $5 shirt from Target or whatever is, is what we need to clothe ourselves. And that's hard. And you have to wrestle with that and make that decision. And my hope would be that we, would, we wouldn't just make that decision in isolation. As the church, we would gather together and, and, and glean the wisdom of the Spirit through all of us in, in searching through those issues. It's funny, I was, I was getting made fun of the other day because we got rid of Netflix the last time everybody hated Netflix because of, I think it was that movie with the, the child dancers that was really suggestive and awful. And, and so we canceled our Netflix subscription and my friend said, yeah, that really hurt them. <laughs> and that's the truth, right? Like, didn't do anything to Netflix. And, and now like all of you are recommending shows to me that I can't watch because I don't have Netflix anymore. And we, we just had, we, we came to that decision as a family and made it and, and, and it's the decision we're making and I'm not gonna make it for anybody else. But I think at the very least, we all have to recognize that this is the world that we live in and the evil effects of it are everywhere. And we need to ask questions and, and seek the wisdom of the spirit and the community and advocate for justice when we can. You know, should we, should Christians be on the ground in Africa saying like these, these work practices are not okay? Yeah, I think so. Should Christians be advocating for pro-life causes? Absolutely. But this side of the return of Christ, we have to be willing to understand that like it's the, the powers of darkness are everywhere and they're doing their mischief. That's not a very uh, great answer, <laughs> but it is, um, I think it's the best we have. We're going to take communion. We always take communion every week. Communion is something of a loyalty pledge. It's a sign of allegiance to Yahweh on the basis of the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. And every week we gather and we affirm that we are not on team powers and principalities. We are on team Jesus. And if you're here, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. I want to say I'm glad that you're here. This is a weird Sunday to be here, so that's fun. But if you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, I'm excited for that. I would encourage you to ask questions, to pursue answers. And as we take communion, no one's going to stop you from sharing in communion with us, but I would encourage you to think about the gravity of what you are going to see. This whole room is going to walk down and take the bread representing Jesus' broken body and the cup representing his shed blood, these things that are evidences of his death on our behalf to pay for our sin, for the, all the twisted and broken parts of our lives. And we're going to eat those things showing our solidarity with Christ, our dependence on Christ as our daily bread, 
and our empowerment by Christ with him inside us, he gives us the ability to go out into the world and actually push back against the darkness. Communion is the physical representation of the fact that we are Jesus people. And so if you're a Christian this morning, this is your reaffirmation that while you are a citizen of the United States, this is not your home. You are part of a different nation, the kingdom of God. And if you're not a Christian, the invitation's open. Do you want to be? Make the decision to turn from the life you're living and trust that Jesus is King and Lord and the authority that deserves your allegiance and take communion with us. And if that's a decision that you want to make, I would, I would appreciate it if you'd tell me about it. We don't, we don't become members of the kingdom of God in isolation. We become members of the kingdom of God in community. And if you want to follow Christ this morning, um, that's awesome. You should share it. So we're going to sing. We're going to rehearse the promises of God through song together. Come up as you want to and take the bread and the cup back to your seat. Spend a few moments with the Lord. Take communion as we worship. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.